0: The guidelines have emphasized the the return to exercise, but also getting kids back to school. It's important. They should not be missing it. Getting them back within a couple days, that's one of those things that even if they're not doing homework, even if they're not doing that stuff, just getting to see their classmates. um, I think that's probably one of the factors that's led to a lot of the mental health. The kids that miss school too much um, probably is one of the more important Predictors of of their subsequent mental health. There was a study that we just published uh, last year that showed it was using all of Ontario visits for the last ten years, um, and we looked at one hundred and fifty thousand um, concussions and about three hundred thousand kids who broke or hurt their arms in other ways, like ankle sprains or other things. We call it orthopedic injury, and the risks of mental health badness. Uh, Shocked us even, you know, one and a half times the risk of psychiatric hospitalization. Really shocking numbers um, because orthopedic injuries still got hurt. They still missed out. um, But probably the difference is with a broken wrist, you're still going to school and you're still, you know, thinking you're going to be okay. And perhaps, you know, the things with uh, the concussion part of it is they are falling behind.
1: That's Dr. Roger Zemek co-leader of the Living Guideline for Pediatric Concussion. He's also a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine, and he holds a clinical research chair in pediatric concussion at the University of Ottawa Brain and Mind Institute. And he's our guest today on Concussion Central, the podcast that changes the way you get your information about concussions. Hi, and welcome to Concussion Central. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Our aim on this podcast is to help you, the listener, navigate the often very confusing world of concussions, diagnosis, treatment, and more. And we understand that for those living with a concussion, the best way to receive information isn't reading material, it isn't online, it isn't on a screen. It's by listening. We hear you. So on this podcast, we'll be bringing you regular audio interviews with some of the world's leading experts on the many aspects of concussions. And today, our expert is someone who knows a lot about kids and concussions. Whether you're a parent, a coach, or work with children, or you're a young person yourself, concussions are becoming a growing concern. Studies have shown that 15 to 20% of adults will suffer persistent concussion symptoms for children under 18 that figure runs as high as 30%. So to learn more, we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Roger Zemick. He's an emergency room doctor at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario where he's also the director of clinical research and there he led the largest pediatric concussion study in the world to predict persistent post-concussion symptoms. He also developed the first comprehensive guidelines for the management of pediatric concussions. Roger Zemick, welcome to Concussion Central.
0: Thank you so much for having
1: me, David. Well, it's great to have you here. Now, I guess let's just dive right into it. I mean, we've talked in the introduction about all the work you've done in, in pediatric concussions. And I, I guess the question, I think a lot of, especially, you know, people who've been involved in this, parents, children themselves, is why are concussions in children so much more challenging?
0: It's a great question. I think it's something that we're still trying to find the answers to. Mm. But I think the challenges are as follows. One, developmentally, kids are not yet mature. They're at all various stages of their maturation. And so comparing a child to themselves where you expect their baseline to be static, uh, you know, no longer uh, improving, things in which a child could do at uh eight years old, they're going to do even better at nine and then do even better at 10. And if you think about it, if they did a something where we wanted to see how kids recover at eight and a half, and now they're uh, nine, that could be you know almost 10% of their lives when you think about uh, just those uh, eight or nine months between um, assessment periods. So one, I think, is the fact that uh, children evolve over time. Two, Doing the assessment depends on lots of things. Uh, to do a proper assessment, you need to assess children's ability to communicate well. And especially for younger children, especially those who are preschool, school uh, their verbal skills are not as developed as a, an adolescent. Uh, their motor skills, even things, something as walking in a straight line back and forth, which is a common uh, mm-hmm. concussion assessment we do children are not yet developmentally able to do that at times, which is why I'm an emergency doctor, as, you, uh, as you're as you aware. We don't give crutches to eight-year-olds and under because mm-hmm. an eight-year-old's not coordinated enough to use crutches yet. And so to do concussion evaluations in which it's going to depend on their ability to remember, to communicate, uh, and to do even balance tests are going to be challenging. And then the last thing is, I think as we mature, we become more aware of our feelings, emotions, and symptoms. Children may be uh, blissfully ignorant of the fact <laughs> that they may not be feeling so well. Uh, whereas as we get older, life becomes makes us uh, more aware of, of, of some of the things that are going on. So I think those are the things that make it a challenge. Um but it's stuff that we would love to have better ways to measure them and to, mm-hmm. to ensure that kids can uh, be optimized for their recovery and to know when they are recovered.
1: So there's a lot of challenges there, and I, I'm guessing that's why you developed the Living Guideline for Pediatric Concussion?
0: So, David, it's a great point and one where we we had lots of reasons why we wanted to start the Living Guidelines. Uh, first and foremost, there was a lot of um, confusion on which types of uh best ways were there to diagnose concussion. Uh, things evolved a lot. I remember when I did my medical school training, I'll, I'll say back in the 90s is when I started. <laughs> yes. uh, you needed to have things like either a loss of consciousness or not remembering what happened, otherwise known as amnesia. Those have evolved over times, but wow. there's still no consensus and there's no def- to clear definition on what things uh, constituted a concussion or not. So we wanted to, to help determine what are the best ways to diagnose concussion, and that's why it was in the original title. Um, It's now called Living Guidelines for for Pediatric Concussion, Mm -hmm. but when we first started it, it was the guideline for the uh, diagnosis and management of concussion. And so diagnosis was, and is less so still a challenge, but uh, diagnosis was a big challenge. Uh, Second, a lot of the evidence for um, pediatric concussion had really started to explode uh, over the years, there was not much out there, uh, mm-hmm. but there were lots of little studies of maybe you know fifty patients here, a hundred patients there, ten patients uh, and others and there was no way to to pull it all together without pulling it all together and that 's what we did. We built a team of of over Uh, 30 experts around the world. We looked at each of the papers, divided it into themes, and tackled uh, each important element of the recognition of it and the management of it based on what evidence we had. And that that allowed us to know what we knew, but importantly, it also allowed us to know what we didn't know. And when we knew things and we knew it as, as solid evidence based on lots of patients and And the most rigorous scientific approaches, Mm -hmm. we'd call it a level A uh, type of recommendation. When something was not so clear yet, we still felt it was important that frontline providers and parents and coaches and teachers had at least expert opinion on how to best approach uh, these conundrums. So we came up with uh, expert recommendations for things that there weren't as strong of an evidence for. And what's interesting is a lot of those things that have after, uh, evidence have really changed the most over the years too. They've evolved.
1: It's amazing, and, and we, it's called the living guideline because, as you're saying, it's it's constantly evolving.
0: Correct. Yeah. I remember our first edition when it first came out in 2014, I think it was 175 or 170 pages if you were to print it all out on a on a PDF or a piece on a paper. Now it's all web-based because A, we don't want to waste the paper, but also the fact that we're able to uh, update just whatever specific recommendation has now provided more clear evidence. Mm-hmm. And so if there is a new finding that uh, determines that um, this treatment approach is the better way of doing it, or, or as importantly, stop doing something that we used to do. Um, that's as valuable as well uh, to providers and to patients and families. And like you said, we do update these on a on a regular basis. Part of that's because the amount of evidence has changed so much. When we first started um, doing this, I think our first uh, batch was. All the evidence ever published up to 2014 Mm -hmm. um, was however many thousands of papers. Well, in the last two years, it's that same amount of papers all the way up from beginning of time to 2014. So the rate of publications in this topic, the amount of interest in this topic has really uh, grown exponentially. Yeah,
1: which is great news because there's obviously so much we still need to learn about concussions. Uh, Who's your intended audience for the Living Guideline?
0: So our our primary audience is the frontline healthcare provider, Mm -hmm. Uh, for lack of a better word, the family doctor or general practitioner Mm -hmm. or general pediatrician. Um, I'm an emergency doctor. I would think it's also potentially for, for emergency as well because... Uh, we know in Ontario, at least uh, at least one third of all concussions are seen first by an emergency department, uh, mm. as elsewhere. And some of those places uh, will change. In some rates, it's, some places it's even even higher. Um, so those are all things that um, are important to to think about.
1: I mean, as an emergency doctor, I mean, what kind of feedback are you getting from colleagues about the guideline? And I mean, are, are enough people seeing this? Or how do people find it? And
0: it's a important way to make sure that whenever we do a study or do an academic uh uh, endeavor such as uh, these guidelines it's one thing to produce it it's another thing to make sure it gets in the hands of people and Mm -hmm. so that's implementation science that's knowledge mobilization uh all technical terms but it's just making sure it's in the hands of the people who need it uh that's one of the things i do is is go on Academic circuit and present at conferences, make sure uh, I pre- publish papers in the journals that those people who who follow those fields are able to know about these updates, uh, doing things like your podcast, even mm-hmm. uh, there's some that are for the general audience, sometimes there's podcasts for emergency doctors. I think the reality is the challenge of emergency medicine is, especially depending on what type it is, uh, whether you're doing general emergency where you see pediatric and adult. You're dealing with heart attacks or strokes or uh, uh, traumas, uh, the whole the whole spectrum of, of, of illness. And same with pediatrics. We see little babies with fevers all the way to, mm-hmm. to mental health uh, presentations, et cetera. Uh, you got to know a lot about uh, a lot of things. And that's where something like having a one-stop trusted source yeah. is valuable because they know they're not going to have the time to necessarily go pull up uh, – PubMed, which is like a repository of all the published papers and and search and how are they going to know which one is a good article and they may not want to read through the methodology. For this, we've already done the curating and summarizing it and and can go straight to the recommendations. So hopefully by keeping it updated on a regular basis, keeping it living, those are things that we can uh, do to ensure it makes it easy for the providers to find things quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's something where... A lot of the emergency is knowing uh, how to recognize, and those are some of the things that we've put in that one-stop sp- um, spot, not mm-hmm. just what is concussion, but also tools and the links to make sure they know what it's not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes the child who comes in doesn't have a concussion. In right. fact, they have a skull fracture, or they have a bleeding inside the brain, and that needs... Um, pictures, like a CT scan to to recognize it, our guideline has those tools and the links to those things as well for those frontline doctors to not mm-hmm. miss the other things that it could be as well.
1: I'm curious what kind of feedback you're getting from colleagues, from other emergency room doctors or pediatricians on what they are taking away from this. Are there things they're saying, wow, that really surprised me? or you know? Is that...
0: I think the one thing that has surprised people the most is our approach to how we recommend returning to life after yeah. an injury. Uh, for many years, the thought was uh, going back to even you know how we opened our conversation, if you had something where you didn't have a memory problem, they used to say one week off because they used to right. do these things called grading. It would be grade one and grade two and grade three. And, and grade one was, uh, oh, it's only one week off because you didn't lose your consciousness and you didn't uh, have any memory problems. So one week off from, your, from, from school and sports and then, and then go back at it. And grade two was two weeks off and grade three was actually four. Mm-hmm. Well, now we know you could have months' worth of symptoms and not have either of those changes. Right. And theoretically, you could have a loss of consciousness yet be really back quicker than a child who didn't have a loss of consciousness. And so we know those old ways of approaching returning to physical activity and school were wrong. Yeah. Even even since then the improvement, we'll call an improvement one, was to say, well, let's just do a graded approach. Mm-hmm. And that graded approach was wait till they're symptom-free and then start a return. Right. And some people were nervous about that, so they did what they did call a conservative approach. So however long they had off, they doubled it for, for all intents and purposes. We now know extra rest is not necessarily good. In yeah. fact, extra rest can be harmful there was a, a very straightforward but elegant study done by a Peds Emerge doctor mm-hmm. uh, out in Wisconsin, um, published in Pediatrics, and they randomized kids to waiting until they were symptom-free or doing extra rest uh, in that dark room. Yeah. And the kids who did the extra rest got worse. Yeah. yeah. And subsequently, uh, others and my team have as, as well have done research to show that doing some physical activity... Even if symptomatic, is associated with faster recovery. So, it's.
1: uh, And what's the thinking behind that? Is it blood flow? Is it? I mean,
0: exactly. There's lots of. I think that it's it's a multifaceted reason. Uh, I do think one blood flow to the brain um, is an important part of recovery. Second. Exercise has always been shown to leading to better outcomes. If a patient has broken their, uh, their arm or leg, doing early physio uh, leads to better function. Mm-hmm. If you have a bad back, uh, the concept of bed rest and getting up and, and moving your back has been shown to be beneficial. Uh, cardiac disease, if you have a, a quadruple bypass, earlier physio and earlier physical <laughs> activities, that. And then lastly, stroke. Stroke mm-hmm. is a severe Traumatic brain injury, where there's often bleeding in the brain, mm-hmm. uh, early physical activities, good for stroke. Why would it be fine for a stroke, but not for concussion? Uh, that helped us uh, provide some of the rationale to why we wanted to do these studies in the first place and, and, and convincing the ethic boards that, you know, this would be a safe thing to do. And again, Important for your listeners, I am not advocating someone get back into a, a sport where they're going to fall, where they're going to collide with someone, even riding a bicycle yet. That's not what I'm, I'm saying. But getting out, going for a walk, uh, getting on a stationary bike where you're not going to fall off, getting your heart rate up a little bit, those things have been shown to improve recovery, A, probably because of the blood flow, two, um, some of the people who get concussion are athletes. Uh, not all, but but many are athletes and they're used to doing physical activity. If you take someone who's used to doing uh, X number of minutes or or even hours a day of activity Mm -hmm. and take that away from them, they're going to be uh, in a situation where they uh, are probably not going to sleep as well because Mm -hmm. they haven't uh, done exercise. They don't sleep as well. Their brain's not going to heal because a lot of brain healing occurs during sleep. Right. Um, the blood flow does actually release some uh, chemicals, uh, and exercise probably releases chemicals that, that does promote brain healing. Mm-hmm. I think third is the uh, social element of it. They can get back to, even if they're not on the, the field or the pitch or the ice, they still may be seeing their friends by going to practice and, and uh, reengaging. Um,
1: right. So
0: the social element uh, of it as well. Uh, is also important. So I think there's lots of uh, things, but I think the last thing is one of the concepts of concussion is that it probably triggers what's called autonomic dysfunction. Um, Probably requires a bit of an explanation because those are technical terms. (laughs) So autonomic dysfunction is, if you think about the brain has two states. Uh, Uh One is called the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, The other is the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, Sympathetic, the best way to think of that is the traditional fight-or-flight state. Uh, Rewind back 20,000 years, you are walking in a a jungle and you see a a tiger. Uh, That tiger is going to make our pupils get big, our heart rate go up. Uh, It's going to make our brain, um, due to the release of the chemicals that this, Mm -hmm. this state releases go into life preservation safety mode. It turns off all the filters. Uh, It's going to let in all the background noise because that snapping of a twig behind you could be that second tiger. Great when it's 20,000 years ago when you're trying to save your life from a tiger. Not so good in 2022 where there are the distractions of internet, computer, uh, COVID, uh, life Mm. stresses, uh, which are not necessarily life-threatening. Yeah, uh, But but are stressors And living too much in that Fight or flight state uh, Can explain some of those symptoms of concussion hmm. So your pupils are big That's probably one of the reasons why So many people have uh, light sensitivity uh, They're Getting symptom exacerbation In complex or crowded or loud Spaces mm-hmm. Again, probably not turning off the filters uh, And letting the more noise come in And um, Exercise is one of only the few ways to treat autonomic dysfunction. Because people can have autonomic dysfunction from other reasons. Um, uh, and exercise uh, is shown to be a therapy mm-hmm. um, uh, for that type of autonomic dysfunction. The other, for those who are non-athletes, yeah. are techniques like mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness, uh, relaxation techniques, Meditating. breathing techniques. meditation. Those are ways to also get out of that fight or flight state, um, which also is probably some of the explanation to why a lot of our patients with concussion have emotional changes too, especially heightened anxiety.
1: Mm. Fascinating. Uh, What does the guideline say? I mean, you're talking about athletes. um, I think of multiple concussions in kids, kids who may not have known they've had the first two even. I mean, what what are we saying about treating and, and managing multiple concussions?
0: You know, it's a super question. Uh, It's one I wish we had a more definitive answer for. Uh, It does go to the fact that every person's an individual, and every patient needs to have a tailored approach uh, to how we manage. And it also goes to the fact that uh, it's important to involve patients and their families, depending on the the age, uh, and even not on the age too, but getting what they want in their shared decision-making. So case in point, um, a person who does a collision sport, who's now having their seventh injury due to the same collision sport. um, Maybe it's time to think about, are there different sports you need to think about doing? Cause I, I do know there are strong benefits for being part of a team for staying healthy, um, uh, avoidance of of obesity and mm-hmm. the other uh, sedentary behavior related illnesses. Mm-hmm. So, being on a sport, doing those things, the camaraderie, the the partnership, working together for a common goal, uh, knowing things are beyond just yourself. These are all important life lessons for sport. Mm-hmm. The thought is, you're maybe a person that was I don't know a, a six foot four teenager and it's very strong, mm-hmm. and maybe you thought this collision sport was your only option. Well maybe doing something like uh, track and field where you're going to throw the shot put. Yeah. You may be awesome at throwing the shot put or the discus, or you want to be doing something with a team. Well, maybe depending on your climate or where you live being on a rowing team, you are big and strong and fast. Maybe even though you, you may have never thought about rowing before, it's uh, something that you could do as well. So there are sometimes different sports for different people. Recognizing, though, there's people with all different uh, uh, body sizes, shapes, skill sets, uh, and preferences for how what sort of sports they want to do. That being said, we don't know what the magic number is uh, for the long-term problems. Uh, good news is there's not as much um, evidence for people who have, outside of collision sports a lot of those people who have had those long term problems were the professional athletes yeah. where that is what they have done not just the not just the straight up quote unquote concussion where they did have this one episode second episode third episode mm-hmm. a lot of the people have are involved in sports or things where it was dozens or hundreds of times a yeah. day yeah. you know it's not the Definitive concussion, it may be what we call a sub-concussive blow that yeah. may be also contributing to these long-term problems. Um, we don't yet know the answer. There's no picture for it yet that can be done to to predict it. I know it's something that a lot of... Um, Current studies are working their best to try to answer these things. So my mm-hmm. hope is in, in a few years' time, we'll be able to add to our guidelines. So here's the advanced picture, or here is a uh, other sort of test, a blood test, or some sort of other uh, what we call objective biomarker, uh, something that we can measure that would say this correlates with uh, this risk. Um, I doubt it will ever be ever th- anything that's going to be, this is going to lead to 100% This outcome. I can't imagine that's going to be the case. It may say, if you have this, you're a X percent higher risk of this long-term anyway. And then it really just comes down to what's risk management, what's risk tolerance, what's the risk and benefits of it. It kind of comes down to there are still people on, on this earth who choose to go skydiving, or there are people on this earth who do Formula One racing. And with or without a concussion, there's a really high risk of something bad happening to them at every time they do their right. high-risk activity. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying we need to uh, be doing that to uh, for concussion, because I think it is important to do the yeah. things like have been done with the rule changes. Uh, making checking uh, ages older in hockey has been shown to be a highly um, successful intervention to prevent a concussion, yet can still enjoy the sport, can still right. uh, thrive, still have all the benefits with the, with the lower risk. Those are things we think we should be doing, especially for kids. Yeah. The challenge is once this person's now 25 or 30, you know, they're adult, what is the right risk tolerance to tell someone while still letting them be uh, autonomous with their decisions?
1: Yeah. I mean, you talk about hockey. This is effectively a hockey-loving nation still. Yes. I mean, what have you learned from studying hockey specifically about concussion? And what should parents be looking for, I guess, too?
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's something that when I've done our, our prospective studies where we enroll thousands of kids across mm-hmm. the country, uh, of the sports, hockey is going to be the number one reason for kids in, in Canada mm-hmm. to be getting Uh, a concussion but it's not the only sport lots of kids get concussions uh, with soccer Mm -hmm. you know even volleyball uh talk about interesting rule change one of the one of the interesting thing was a lot of kids would get concussions in volleyball not during a game but during warm-up there'd be five or six balls on the court people practicing their spikes Mm -hmm. and someone running to go pick up a ball not realizing there's a second or third or fourth ball going around and, and then get hit uh with a pretty powerful shot, based on a warm up when there were more than one ball, so concussions can happen. To go back to your point, I think we have learned. Uh, this is not my, my work, but it's work that you know we've we've incorporated into things like guidelines and and recognizing. For I've been involved with things like Parachute Canada, which is injury prevention, but the the group out in Calgary, led by Carolyn Emery and others, have done a really great job thinking about what rules changes can be done for things like hockey to still allow for a great, uh, activity for kids, mm-hmm. but keep it safer by preventing, uh, injury. And I say injury, not just concussion, because by increasing the age of body checking, it will also decrease the risk of other injuries, shoulders, knees, other types of, uh, other mm-hmm. injuries can be prevented by well, mm-hmm. and the sport could still be enjoyed. Um, you know, so they're, my,
1: saying, they're saying now what? It's 14, I think, now that we're, we're introducing body checking. Yeah, and, is, each, and it may even go up. Is that right? Yeah, Are they suggesting? Each
0: pro, yeah. Each province has different, different rules. Mm. Um, Ontario is one age. Uh, I think Alberta is continuing to work on getting it higher and higher into the teenage uh, years as well. The other thing to recognize the proportion of the odds of uh, any individual child going to the NHL is still Mm -hmm. very, very, very low. Mm -hmm. Yet a lifetime of staying healthy, doing your best, uh, getting that best quality of life. I bring the quality of life up because we know with a concussion, this was a study I did years ago, we know that for the kids who recover within the first month, most of their quality of life gets back to their pre-entry baseline. If your symptoms last beyond a month, it takes even if you're better at five weeks, it still lags behind and it can take three months or more for for some of your quality of life to get back. But what was interesting is for school uh, school related quality of life, even if you had gotten better within the first month, even at three months out uh, with or without getting better, your quality of life, is still much below what it should be compared to your peers. And that's a big deal. When you're talking about a child who's in, let's say, 10th or 11th grade, they now have exams, they're worried about getting into university, they're worried about their career. And well, you may say, oh, it's it's just one uh, little injury. But if that injury happened at the wrong time of their academic year, it could delay things or postpone things or uh, not to be macabre, but could change the trajectory. If this is now something that's taking months and months and months to get better, uh, which we obviously want to do our best to, to avoid. Mm -hmm. Um, But if, if you're the, one of the unlucky ones who is taking longer to recover, you want to make sure that that quality of life is not impacted. So I think that's my, my lesson in the long winded answer It's important that kids get to get back to doing what they they want, love, and need to do. You know, need to do is they got to get back to school. Mm -hmm. Uh, The love to do may be their sport. For most kids, they can probably get back to the sport that they love to do, uh, as long as the parents are okay with it. For some, uh, working in a concussion clinic, I have seen the children, and now you're getting uh, whatever the too many is for them it's time to think about something else.
1: Yeah. Um, and I'm always curious about um, how you got, or our guests got, got where they are. And I'm wondering what what brought you into the the world of concussions.
0: So uh, full disclosure, I, I probably, the first reason is uh, I've had three concussions myself. Yeah. One of them, I, I did actually lose consciousness for several minutes. Yeah. Um, I don't remember pretty much of the the, the rest of that day. Um, and I know it took me a while to recover. Uh, I ended up getting a couple more concussions, uh, subsequently, uh, kind of fluke accidents. The first one was on the ice. Uh, I grew up in the States, um, but, uh, I lived in Connecticut, so New England. So we still had ice. I uh, know it was, just a, it was still skating. That's and, hockey uh, country. Yep. It was still hockey country. Yep. Uh, the second one I had was, uh, I was, uh, play baseball and I was a pitcher. And between innings, we were talking about volleyball warm-ups, mm-hmm. in baseball between innings, uh, the first baseman would throw the balls to the second baseman, the shortstop, and the third baseman to practice uh, the grounders while I'm warming up mm-hmm. with the catcher. And it was just an errant throw from the third baseman back over to the first baseman and hit me <laughs> right, in the, right in the head when I wasn't even expecting to be there, another ball uh, coming my way. Um, and, and rightly so. I, I remember my coach would not let me play. And this was before the day of cell phones, and I yeah. had to go. Uh, he handed me a quarter because that's how much a phone call was, and I had to walk over and find the the payphone at the other uh, end of the, the the park. I had a bu- you know a bunch of minutes, mm-hmm. and I I walked over, and I even remember not remembering my phone number very well.
1: Wow! And
0: being able to not get a hold of my mom, and then finally I had to just sat on the bench till she came and picked me up at the end of the game when she was due to pick me up anyway. Um, And so I I know I had a few concussions myself. Um, I ended up kind of following the advice I give now. I I did end up switching to running and I, not because of just concussions, but but because I I actually loved it. And I Mm -hmm. I ended up running collegiately in the division one in the U S and I still run and and compete with running and triathlons uh, to this day. So it's something that's become a passion, but it's part of it is it was the influence of a parent. Mm -hmm. I was in the emergency department and a dad came in, his son, uh, played hockey and his son had more than a half dozen and his head even started wow. to fall behind. And, uh, the dad said, well, when's he going to get better from this one? Cause this one wasn't even a hockey. It was a fluke injury right? Right? and, right. uh, inside the house, like not sport related at all. Yeah. And dad said, how long is this going to get to take better? And I said, I don't know. And, and to paraphrase, it was something like, do you not know because you're stupid? <laughs> or do you <laughs> not know because science doesn't know? And I said, I, I hope I'm not stupid. I, I just don't think science knows. He said, well, you guys need to get on that and figure that out. And I took his advice to heart. And so I started reading the literature, realized we didn't know, published on it. And then when I got one of my first CIHR grants to, to design this large study that we did, um, I invited that dad and a, and, a, and a mom of another patient to come with the team of world experts like, you know, the guy who's now the medical doctor for all the NHL was part of the the, the team and the guy who is the current you know doctor of the senators was at this meeting as Amazing. well as experts from all over from from Harvard and, and elsewhere. But this dad had his chance to say, how should we design the study? And this dad, we one of the things we were debating is how do we define persistent symptoms? Mm-hmm. Because one uh, definition used three months of symptoms. one used month, one month, and I said, "Well which, you know, which do we pick?" Yeah. And this dad spoke up and said, "I think one month's more than long enough to have a kid be falling behind." And, and he said it much more uh, emotionally and, and and straightforward, but to paraphrase that that was the sentiment, and I said, "You're 100 percent right." And so, by engaging parents and families in that, we designed that study to choose one month as the outcome and so that's part of it. it's the my own experience, but then seeing that parent uh struggle uh watching that child probably mm-hmm. inspired me the most to to change tracks now i'm a, I'm a clinician scientist, I work in the emergency but i've I've always been a, a researcher at heart and um, it was it was perfect timing for me to think about what was the the next thing to study, and that that combined with my own experience was uh, the probably the inspiration. And so uh, it was a, a good lesson for all of us. You know, I, I think whenever I talk to people that are scientists, I say be sure you keep your pulse on the clinical work because yeah. that's, that's where the questions really come up because you don't want to answer a question that's a so what. It's got to matter to families. It's got to matter to changing practice or changing the outcomes because that's why we do this work.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks to that, Dad, and thanks to you for the living guidelines. It sounds like there was a direct line from there. Where can people find the living guidelines who are interested
0: uh, it's, it's quite easy. The mm. the word pedsconcussion.com. com, P-E-D-S, p e uh, d s concussion com, and there are links to uh, patient and family versions, a coach, um, and there's lots of tools there that can be downloaded if you are a, a, a parent, but also volunteer as a, you know on the sideline at one of the kids' games on how to even recognize a concussion, the various tools and, and tips that you may want to use to to help. Uh, Others recognize uh, what might be a a suspicious case.
1: Fantastic. Well, Roger Zemek, thank you so much. And this is an incredibly important uh, tool that you provided for all
0: of us out there. So
1: we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and appreciate all the work you've done.
0: Thank you so much, David.
1: And thank you for listening. If you enjoy Concussion Central, please do us a big favor and give us a five-star rating and write a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I know it's a bold ask, but the way the algorithm works, it's the single best way for these interviews to reach as wide an audience as possible. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Concussion Central, you can visit us at concussioncentral.ca. Until next time, I'm David McGuffin.